Let's pray together, please. Lord, thank you this morning. There really is no shadow you won't light up. No mountain you won't climb up coming after us. Your love is overwhelming. And Lord, we're, well, we barely have touched the hem of it. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and open the scriptures to us, we pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and open our hearts and minds to you and Most especially, Lord, we pray, lead us to Jesus. It is in his name we ask this. Amen. Please be seated. One of the most important lessons in Christian discipleship is the lesson of abounding. Of abounding. Everybody say abounding. Now, the word abound is important for us at Holy Cross this year, particularly because it's the word that is shaping the theme of how we are walking through the year. At the annual meeting, I laid out this word. What does it look like for us to abound as we come out of the pandemic and we begin to come back into what is emerging in the church and the world around us? To abound is a word that is really full of life. It's plenteous. It's bountiful. It means to bear much fruit. It means to overflow, to abound, is an important principle to learn as a Christian disciple. Now, God began teaching me this principle in earnest in the spring of 2001. It was sometime after Easter, and I was a curate at my first parish after coming out of seminary. Uh, Curate is an Anglican term for like junior priest. Technically, that's not what it is, but that's the way it functioned at the church where I was. I was the young priest on staff and I was learning how to be a pastor. I was the curate and I'd had a week that was even more busy than every other week was. And I was busy not only as a priest on a fairly small staff in a relatively large church, but also with a family with three children under six. So we were busy. On this particular week, I'd had a funeral. I'd had several people in the hospital. We'd had an accident. Um, That's why the hospital visit. So it was a chaotic week in the life of our parish. And on top of all that, I also was in charge of the youth because I was the youngest priest on the staff. And it was the Friday night of the annual youth lock-in. Now, some of you are old enough to know what a lock-in is. Um, For those of you who don't know, it's basically it's an overnighter at the church, and I was responsible for it. Now, I was wise enough to bring in a friend's worship band uh, from out of state, and they kind of carried the spiritual load, the teaching, and the worship, and it was a beautiful, beautiful night. The kids were getting it. They were engaging in ways that I had been sowing seeds in hopes of seeing for quite some time. On the Saturday morning... After the lock-in, I was pretty tired. And in the midst of worship, as I was just thanking God, it hit me like a brick. Oh my God, I've got to preach tomorrow. Which you'd think normally I'd be prepared for, and normally I would, but it had been one of those kind of weeks. I just had never stopped. And so there I was panicking because I had to preach the next day to the entire congregation And I didn't even know what the text was. And so in worship, I was having an open dialogue with God. And it went something like this. Help! Oh, my God! And the peace that passes understanding. 
washed over me in a way that was palpable and tangible and the kindness of God was present to me. And the Spirit of God whispered to my heart in the still small voice in the way he often will speak to his children, be at peace, be at peace. I've got this. And I just melted into the peace of God. And then he gently said while he had me in a place of surrender, and I don't want you to preach with a manuscript tomorrow, Chris. Now, I had never done that before at that point. And in the peace of God, I said, absolutely, Lord. And then I got home. And the peace of God seemed to have disappeared. (laughs) And the day was busy. My three young kids were happy to see Dad after being gone so much of the week. I didn't get to even look at the text until that evening after they were in bed. And I had to preach for the first time ever without notes from Revelation. As a young priest who had never preached that text before, and I freaked out, and I poured over my commentaries thinking I've got to at least make sure I don't wander into heresy, God help me, and I studied, and, I, and then I did what we so often do when we panic or when God asks something of us, I began to bargain with God. Anybody ever bargained with God before? And I was like, Lord, like this morning was great, but tomorrow it's the, it's the formal services. It's the big church. It's like people don't all like me there. Could I just write out the first point, Lord? And it was as though he said, sure, let's try it. And I thought, ah, oh, hooray. And so I scribbled away and wrote and throw pieces of paper away. And it was after midnight when I finally collapsed, having written out my first point with three dots, dot, 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 which essentially meant after this, I'll trust you. I've got my sermon. I go give it at several services. I corner a friend of mine after the last service because I knew she'd tell me the truth. She had a Ph.D., Uh, from Fuller Seminary in biblical psychology. So she was biblically astute and she was honest. And I knew she wouldn't just say good sermon at the door. And I said to her, Beth, how was it? She said, Chris, I have to tell you, that was quite possibly the best sermon I have ever heard. Funny thing is, I have no idea what you said in your first point. But after that, (laughs) it was absolutely fantastic. And that was when God was beginning to teach me what it is to abound, how to be fruitful, how to see overflow, how to see the plenty of God in my life. And that's a big part of what we're learning here in our gospel lesson today. We're getting a revelation of the character of Jesus, who he really is. And in the midst of that, he's teaching his disciples this crucial principle of abounding. So if you want to take out your text, which you got on the way in, or it's on the screen or your PDF, whatever you got there. We're going to start at verse one of John chapter 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And we'll pause right there. Now, they're in Galilee. They're there because Jesus had told them to go to Galilee. Um, In Mark chapter 14, he said, after I am raised, I want you to go to Galilee where I'll meet you. In Mark 16, on the day of the resurrection, as the angel spoke to the women at the tomb, 
He said to them, go and tell his disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of them into Galilee. And so here they are now in Galilee. This will be the third of Jesus's corporate revelations to these disciples. It's a few weeks after the resurrection. Now, can you imagine, and let's just try to let our creative imagination enter into the text for a moment, what it was like on that journey from Jerusalem, where they had been in the upper room, to Galilee, probably several days walk for them. What's going on? What are those conversations like? Because Jesus is there, but he's different. He's alive, but he's not the same. He's himself, and yet he's so much more than they could have ever imagined. Like, like how much of their conversation from the time they wake up to the time they go to bed do you think is like, what's going on here? Like pretty much all of it, I would guess. It'd be hard to talk about the weather in the midst of that. <clears throat> and now here they are in Galilee, where Jesus has told them to go, to wait for him, and they're doing that. <clears throat> and they're waiting. And we don't know how long it is. Could be a day, it could be a week, could be a couple of weeks. Now let me just ask a quick question of you. In the midst of exciting times, how often or how well do you like to wait? How about in the midst of boring times? Do you like to wait generally? We don't like to even wait in the grocery store, much less. Think about when you're anticipating something wonderful coming that you can't quite figure out and yet you know will be glorious in some way These guys are normal people. In fact, they're just like us. Probably a lot of us in this room are kind of type A or maybe at least type B plus. That's how you get to live in areas like this, right? You probably don't sit around all that much. You probably tend to be doers. In fact, I know many of you and I know many of you are doers. These guys are doers. Peter's a doer. And Peter doesn't have TV, Like, what's he going to do? Well, he's going to do what comes naturally to him. There's the sea. Let's go fishing. Some uh, scholars, some theologians think, oh, he's abandoning Jesus. And I don't think it's that. I mean, it's debatable, I suppose. I think he's just doing what comes naturally to him. And isn't that what we do when we're waiting on God? We're tempted to do what comes naturally to us. And why is that? Because it's hard to wait on God. Why? Because he doesn't usually give us the whole plan laid out in front of us. He expects us to obey him step by step along the way. And he fills in the details as we go. And so these guys go back to what they know. They know how to fish. And they were good at it at one point in their life, though they had laid down their nets to follow Jesus. They went out and they got into the boat. But that night, everybody say it, they caught how much? Any fishermen in the room? How much do you like going out and catching nothing? You hate it. It costs you a lot of money if you're going out to the deep water around here. They caught nothing, just nothing. Fishermen don't like that. Now, let's stay in the boat for a minute before we jump to the morning. There's Peter, and there's the guys, and several of them are professional fishermen. They haven't, as far as we know, done this for a while. It probably felt pretty good at first. The water and the salt on their hands, they didn't have lines. They're 
cast netting. They're throwing their nets and they're pulling it in. They're using muscles they haven't used much for the last couple of years. This is invigorating. And then the first hour rolls by. And then the second hour rolls by. And then the third hour rolls by. And they got nothing but net. And this is not a basketball game. (laughs) At what point do you think they start falling off in their enthusiasm about this whole fishing venture? Again, the text doesn't say, but I can just see one by one them kind of starting with the non-fishermen checking out, maybe laying down in the boat like this is too much. And as the night wears on, the dawning realization that this is not working, I think six of them stopped. And one of them kept going the entire night. Which one do you think, I think, went the entire night? I think it was Peter. I think Peter probably kept going the entire night. Larry Hunsberger says, It's funny how we so often attempt to compensate for going the wrong direction by increasing our speed. And isn't that what we often do? We're waiting on God and we start to increase our speed. We can't figure out what he's up to, so we work a little harder. We're not sure what we're supposed to do, so we get anxious or we get angry or the stuff that's truly within us surfaces and churns. And I suspect that's what we're seeing with Peter. He's working even harder as the night goes on and then the sun begins to come up. He's discovering the beginning point of the law of abounding. Jesus said this in John chapter 15, verse five, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And it is essential as Christian disciples that we get to the point where we recognize that spiritually we can do nothing apart from the presence of God in our lives. We can be busy. We can accomplish things. You might be the most successful person in the world, but you can do nothing of lasting value apart from Jesus remaining in him and he remaining in you. And they're beginning to find this out at this place. And the sun begins to come up. Verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Here he is again. He's doing his thing. He's there, but they can't quite figure out that it's him. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him. No. Hey, fishermen back there, how do you think it sounded? Do you think it was a sullen no or do you think it was an angry no? I don't know. But I I think we need to be careful that we don't get swept up into the religious fog of making these people more than people like us. They're like us. They're like you. These are not super saints. These are normal people going through normal life with an extraordinary God. And what does he say to them as the sun comes up? Children. Hey, little guys. Hey, boys. You think he's scowling at them from the shore? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think so is because Jesus is not interested in shaming them. Jesus is interested 
in them being fruitful, in them seeing him for who he really is, it says that this is now the third time he came to reveal himself, and this is how he revealed himself. And then it'll say it again at the end of the text. He revealed himself like this. He reveals himself as a gracious, kind, and good God who loves us powerfully and passionately. How do I know that? Because he went to the cross and he died a brutal death to bear your sin in mind so that we might be made new in God. So that you might be restored to the God who loves you. Children is a relational term. Children is an affectionate term. It's like the father or the mother who calls the little ones into their lap. It's like the grandparent who is absolutely delighted when their grandkids come for a visit. Children, have you caught anything? Now, you know, in the scriptures, when God asks questions, it isn't because he doesn't know the answer. It's because he's trying to get them to come to a point of revelation, a point of understanding, a point of recognition at where they really are that they're coming up empty. The nets have nothing in them because they're doing this in their own strength. They've just simply practiced what we also often practice, doing life apart from God. No. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And so they cast it. They hear the word of Jesus not quite knowing it's him yet, but they obey what they know and what happens. They were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. Remarkable things happen when we obey the voice of God. That is part of the law, the principle, the practice of abounding. Apart from me, you can do nothing, Jesus says, but with me, you will bear much fruit. Remaining in me and I remaining in you. W.A. Criswell, who was a Baptist preacher, talked about one time going to the Tuskegee Institute. And while there, he met George Washington Carver. And he was an old man at the time. Now, if you don't know who he was, he was an African-American man who was probably one of the greatest chemists in this nation that we've ever produced or that has been produced by God, I would say. As a young man, he'd been a slave. He had been sold at one point for a horse. And yet here he was late in his life and he had done remarkable things in agriculture, in chemistry, like you have peanut butter because of this guy. Now, that's not as remarkable to some of you as it is to me. But like, this has been a staple of my life for a long time. And I say that God bless that man. Well, Criswell and his friends who were there after hearing Carver speak asked him, you know, how is it possible that you've done all this? And he, he did more than just peanut butter. How is it possible you did all this? And he pointed up and he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. It was a man who had learned to take the natural gifts and abilities that he had and submit them to God so that God through him could do remarkable things. And listen, this is important. He did it as a chemist. So if you're a chemist or a doctor or a nurse or a lawyer or a teacher, you don't have to be a pastor to bear much fruit in this world. 
You have to be you, uniquely called and made, and yet learning how to abound in God, God through you doing a great work in the midst of where you work, affecting the world around you. But if you try to do it on your own, you're going to come up with empty nets. That's what we learn here, and that's what these guys saw They cast it out and they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish and the bells are ringing because guess what? You can go read Luke chapter five. This is the way he started out with several of these guys calling them away from their nets that they would be fishers of men. Isn't it great that God doesn't expect you to get it all the first time? Like he knows we're going to miss And he's so gracious and kind. And this is part of the revelation of Jesus that he just puts it out there again with an invitation for them to recognize him. He wants us to know him. He wants you to understand who he is. He wants you to see the wonderful power of his grace and his mercy and his goodness toward you in the midst of your life. That disciple whom Jesus loved, this is verse seven, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. How loud was that? It's the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, maybe he just whispered, it's the Lord. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work, threw himself into the sea. You know what he did? He took a belly flop straight into grace. He's desperate for the Lord. He wants to get to him. And he's going to swim to shore now in a bathrobe. It's remarkable the way this imagery, isn't it baptismal-like in its imagery? Here's Peter throwing himself into the ocean because he sees Jesus and he wants to get to him more than anything else. He doesn't care about the fish anymore. He wants Jesus. He wants the Lord above everything else. And, And just let your mind play out. There on the shore is Jesus. He's got the fire Right? He's got some charcoals, he's got some fish already broiling and some uh, bread on the side. And here's Peter in his bathrobe, soaking wet, standing there. What do you think Jesus' eyes look like? Well, they're probably seeing right through his heart as he looks over that charcoal fire. Remember the last time they saw each other was over a fire, but it was at night. It said that Jesus looked at him. And Peter turned and fled and wept bitterly because he had known what he'd done. He'd abandoned his Lord. And yet I suspect this time his eyes are simply eyes of welcome. He's glad he's there. It's hard to look people in the eyes when you're filled with shame. And we don't know because the text doesn't tell us whether Peter was able to hold Jesus' gaze. I suspect he's looking at his feet because that's where your eyes want to go when you're in shame. And as he's looking at his feet, I wonder what pops into his mind. Again, we don't know, but we're allowing ourselves to creatively let the text evoke within us a response. And I pray the Spirit of God is doing that in your heart even now. Maybe he's remembering these words of Jesus from John 15. It wasn't John 15 then. It was the night of the Last Supper. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I remain in you, 
you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Or maybe he's remembering Jesus saying, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter said, no, 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 wash it all, like my head and the whole part of me. And there's Peter looking down his dripping feet. His whole body is wet at this point. Jesus said, look, you're clean, Peter. You don't need a bath. You just need your feet washed. And yet here's Peter again, going above and beyond what God has said, what God has done. He's just there. And he's met with eyes of grace and mercy. He's met with love. And, and, and I want you to hear this too. God will meet you with love. God has done an incredible amount in order for you to know his love. His heart for you is a heart of love, a heart of mercy, a heart of grace. This is the savior of the world. The one who is remarkably pleased with you, even on the day that you don't like yourself very much even on the days when you blow it, even in correction. To paraphrase C.S. Lewis, that voice is like the voice we love the most in the world. Not quite the voice of your father whom you would hear when you were a little child, not quite like the voice of your mother who would comfort you in the night, but a voice, the voice that knows you and has spoken you before you even created in your mother's womb. He knew you, he called you, and he gave you a purpose in this life. And part of that purpose is to bear fruit for his kingdom. This is the God, this is the Savior, this is the Jesus being revealed. And so he says, well, come on up, fellas, and let's have breakfast. That's a paraphrase. Verse 10, Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught, which is really funny. If you allow yourself to believe Jesus has a good sense of humor, and I'm pretty sure he does because he came up with the giraffe. And the duck-billed platypus. Bring some of the fish that you just caught. Well, how'd they catch the fish? This is the abounding lesson. You catch because he does. You see abundance because of his power working in and through you. And yet you get to be a part of the process. The Christian life is not this. Jesus saves me and I go to heaven. The Christian life, the life of a disciple is Jesus saves me by his grace. And he fills me with his spirit and he calls me to a purpose. And he teaches me daily to let go of my own natural ways of doing things, to trust his voice, to trust his heart, to live in his grace, to see him as a God who abounds toward me and who wants to abound through me to the world around me. And along the way, you bear much fruit. And he gets the glory, but you get to share in it. Oh yeah, and then you get to go to heaven later. It's a lot better than the, than the version some of you were given. So Simon, because he's still learning, went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. Why 153? Because that's how many there were. But they're large fish. You notice that? In the generous heart of God, he's lavish. He abounds. John Eldridge points out the fact that this is not unlike when he started at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And remember, he brought out the wine at the end of the party and everybody's like, whoa, the wine, six big jars of wine. It's like 908 bottles if you do the math. 
Is Jesus a drunk? No, Jesus is lavish. And he's showing something about the heart of God in those stone water jars and these 153 large fish. There's a lavishness to God. Does it mean we're always going to have everything big? No, but there is still a lavishness to God. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. It's an invitation back into relationship. It's an invitation into hospitality. Sounds very much like that passage in Revelation. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any of you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and eat with you and you with me. Which incidentally is one of the verses that God used to win my heart to him. Because it wasn't an invitation to be religious. He was inviting me to be a friend who shares meals with him and who lives life with him and who sees him do remarkable things. Let me ask you this as we close. Have you learned to abound? Or are you still kind of going about it all in your own strength? The good news is when you start to learn, oh, there's a different way of doing this. All you have to do is surrender to the Lord and say, yes, show me, teach me, lead me. I'm going to yield to you. So this week, as you have your daily time with God, I'm assuming you do that. Why don't you ask him, Lord, are there areas of my life where I'm doing it in my own strength in what I can accomplish what I can do on my own without you? Or Lord, are there places you're inviting me to learn this lesson of abounding? That apart from you, I can really do nothing. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you and praise you this morning at the lavishness of your heart. We pray, Lord, that we would learn to yield, that we would abound. We pray for Holy Cross, Lord, that we would abound as a congregation each of our campuses. Pray, Lord, for our diocese that you cause us to abound as well and that you would get the glory in the process. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.